Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Schechter. Religion, violence, anti-Semitism, the fate of the Catholic Church, all subjects as contemporary as today's headlines. The problem is that too often we see these headlines and think about these issues in the moment, in the now. Yet to really understand them requires or at least begs for a deeper understanding of history. And what better way to get that history than in the storytelling of a great novel? That's what my guest James Carroll has been helping us with for years, teaching us while he entertains us. James Carroll is a distinguished scholar in residence at Suffolk University. He's a columnist for the Boston Globe. He's the author of 10 novels and seven works of nonfiction, a winner of the National Book Award, and the best-selling author of Constantine's Sword. It is my pleasure to welcome James Carroll back to this program to talk about his new novel, The Cloister. James Carroll, thanks so much for joining us. My, my privilege, Jeff. Great to be back with you. Great to have you here. I want to talk a little bit first about the different ways, the different really times that you tell this story, both in, in the 1950s and the post-World War II era, and also going back into medieval history, going back as far as the 12th century. Talk a little bit about that juxtaposition first. Well, Jeff, the, juxta- the juxtaposition was actually suggested to me by the structure of the uh, museum in Manhattan called the Cloisters. Uh, the Cloisters is the Metropolitan Museum of Art's medieval collection. It's a, a, a faux monastery. It's a kind of monastic building on the far tip of Manhattan, so uh, well away from the Met itself. And it's it was assembled in the early 20th century of out of the uh, stone ruins of medieval monasteries in France that were rescued and brought to the United States, funded by John D. Rockefeller, actually. And if you go into the cloisters, as some of your listeners no doubt have, you find yourself uh, transported uh, to a, a world of a thousand years ago, sitting in these monastic rooms, stone, arcaded, uh, arched columns, um, beautiful garden, fountain in the middle and uh, suddenly it's the 12th century I was sitting in that central cloister of the cloisters the, the museum word is plural but because several cloisters monastic cloisters were put together there but I was sitting in the central one and saw that the on the wall that the the a descriptive sign uh, identified it as having been in a monastery in 1142. And I happen to know that that was the year in which Peter Abelard, the famous philosopher monk, um, died. Uh, He's known in our uh, tradition, of course, because he was paired with the uh, famous abbess nun Eloise. So Abelard and Eloise, one of the great love stories of Western culture, and it was uh, sitting in that monastery that I just suddenly realized there were two stories in front of me. One, the medieval story, Abelard and Eloise, and the other, a story of uh, a woman who, for her own reasons, found herself coming to this very place after World War II. So I told two stories, a story about Rachel Vedette, a Holocaust survivor, a French woman who had been in a French concentration camp run by the Nazis, uh, and who uh, made it to New York, um, and 
she, for her own reasons, was quite attuned to the medieval story, brought the memory of it with her, worked in this monastery as a docent, uh, this monastery art gallery. And uh, into that art gallery, uh, one day walks a priest from the local Catholic parish, Father Michael Cavanaugh. Uh, they encounter each other, and all at once, uh, a dynamic is set moving that brings their own contemporary stories uh, to a, a point of reckoning, while at the same time uh, bringing into their lives uh, the story of Abelard and Eloise from a thousand years ago. And as the point you made in, in your introductory remark, we can't really understand where we are, or who we are even, without understanding much more fully where we've come from, or who we people of the West used to be. The story of Abelard and Eloise, the early 12th century, is actually the story of two people who stood at a crossroads of Western culture. It's a, a point at which several things happened that we're still haunted by. One, of course, was the establishment of the Crusades, uh, which is a long time ago from one point of view, but when you recall that President George W. Bush uh, called the War on Terror, which is still raging, uh, a crusade. You realize it's not that long ago. The crusades made the world of Islam the negative other for Europe, made it easy to think of Muslims as the enemy. And the era of the crusades also brought the violence of Christian religion down forcefully on Jews, the first pogroms in Europe, went hand-in-hand hand with the crusade of the early uh, 12th century. So all of that is at play in this novel. Uh, the Crusades, from the Crusades to the Holocaust. Uh, and we're uh, not finished with any of that ourselves, even in 21st century America. Even on the contemporary side of this story, the story of the cloister, is... In the 1950s, what was kind of a tipping point for the Catholic Church as well? Talk a little about that. Well, the Holocaust had just happened. Um, and in the early years after World War II, many people thought of the Holocaust as something that had happened to the Jewish people. But through the 1950s into the 1960s, my years of coming of age, actually, what became clear was that the Holocaust was an interruption in the history of Western culture itself. The study of the Holocaust shouldn't be carried out in departments of Jewish studies. They should be, it should be carried out in the study of Western civilization. What happened in the 1950s into the 60s in the Catholic Church was Catholics began to reckon slowly but surely with the church's failure during the Holocaust, not only the failure of church leaders to speak out against the Nazi crime, but also the reckoning with the fact that the Nazi crime, although it was unique and carried out by Nazis, that the Nazi crime could not have happened if it didn't depend on the long history of Christian anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism. So the 1950s was the beginning of the church's reckoning with that history, especially when in the late 50s, a new pope uh, 
took charge of the Catholic Church, Pope John the Twenty Third, who was a very different figure from his predecessor, Pius the Twelfth. John the Twenty Third called the Second Vatican Council a reforming council, but its central purpose for him was to begin to reckon with the Catholic failure during the Holocaust, which it did then when it took up the question of the old Christian slander against the Jewish people, the so-called Christ killers. And when the Second Vatican Council renounced that slander, uh, an important part of this reckoning was achieved. My book, my novel, The Cloister, uh, comes out of that moment, and it tells the story of a Catholic priest in 1950 who is among the first to see the implications of what, you, what the church failure really meant. Uh, and it begins to kind of motivate him to change his life, to change his relationship to the church, to challenge the authorities in his life, uh, and ultimately to change his life uh, in a very fundamental way. He does it in conversation, a deep encounter with this Jewish Holocaust survivor. Her name is Rachel Vedette, uh, who, who was herself from Paris and who survived uh, the Holocaust, but who did not um, walk away with it unscarred. Uh, and so um, the novel is intensely personal, uh, narratives about these individuals, but it's also a reflection on the broad cultural transformation that took place as a result of what was laid bare in the heart of Europe in the 1930s and 40s. There's also, this, to, to bring it back, there's this nexus with, with Peter Abelard and, and his rebellion and what he tried to, to stop or certainly to warn against back in the 12th century. Well, remember that the first crusade was called in 1095-96. Peter Abelard was a very young man at that point. He was the son of a knight. He was expected to become a knight. At that point, the knighthood of Europe uh, embraced holy war for the first time. And Peter Abelard stood against that. He did not want the militant warrior Christ he wanted the Prince of Peace. And that's what took him uh, into the clerical life. He became a clergyman. He became a scholar. He was a founder of the school at the cathedral in Paris, which ultimately became the University of Paris. The Sorbonne today had its origins in what Peter Abelard did uh, nearly a thousand years ago. And he became the greatest teacher in Europe from all over uh, the continent, young men, only young men were trained in incipient universities then, young men came to sit at the feet of Peter Abelard. His story takes a dramatic turn when the head of the cathedral, the canon so-called, asks Peter Abelard to instruct his niece, a brilliant young woman who needs a good teacher. Peter Abelard takes on the, uh, you might say, case of his uh, superior's niece. Her name is Eloise, and he does begin to tutor her. She's as brilliant as he is, a great challenge for him, and soon enough they fall in love. Their love story is illicit. 
it's against the rules, um, it's out of bounds. When they're discovered, Peter Abelard is savagely punished by her uncle. In fact, he was castrated. This is historical. And he was effectively banished. He embraced the life of an obscure monk. Uh, Eloise went into a convent, but she refused to quit. Uh, she continued to resist the broad uh, structures of denial, of irrational religion, of oppressive power, insisted that Abelard come back into the fray, uh, re-enter the argument that is raging at that moment in culture, and he does. And over the next couple of decades, he resumes his powerful figure, his powerful role as a great philosophical, theological thinker, holds out a vision of a humanist Christian faith that includes a rejection of religious warfare and a rejection of anti-Jewish prejudice. Uh, for these positions, he is challenged as a heretic. In fact, a church council condemns him as a heretic. The person who is his steadfast supporter through all of this is Eloise. The letters they exchange are among the most uh, precious documents of romantic love that we have in the West. And it's as romantic lovers that they are mostly remembered. But it is their character as embodying a humanist vision of the of the culture of the church but of the broad culture of europe that they should be most remembered now if the church had embraced abelard's vision in the 12th century an ecumenical respectful uh, uh tolerant vision uh the history of Western culture would have gone in a different direction. And certainly the story of the relationship between the church and the Jews, and therefore between the broad culture of Europe and the Jews, would have been very different. So the novel I've written uh, takes all of this up and locates it in the intensely personal story of this man and woman, Abelard and Eloise. It is also, to the point we were discussing before, just consistently remarkable, and I wonder how remarkable it is for you, having studied this and, and written about it for so long, that so many of these issues from 800, 900 years ago are still contemporary issues. George W. Bush defined the war on terror, to repeat myself, mm. as a crusade. The crusades wrecked havoc on the European mind a thousand years ago. For almost 200 years, Europe defined itself positively by defining Islam negatively. The readiness with which the West has gone to war against Muslims in the last 18 years reflects the way in which that habit of mind is not broken. And the way in which uh, anti-Semitism has surfaced again uh, reminds us that the war against Islam in the Middle Ages was also the occasion that saw the first real uprise of violent anti-Semitism. So this old story is actually being um, 
carried out again with fresh power. The damage that the original Crusades wrecked on Europe and on the Middle East, uh, setting in motion a kind of cursed narrative that continues to this day, for example, between Israel and Palestine, Mm -hmm. uh, that uh, cursed dynamic has perverted the American imagination in very powerful ways, which is the only way to understand the terribly destructive, self-destructive course of action that we, the American people, have embarked on since 9-11. We have uh, set in motion uh, a tragic, tragic wave of violence that won't uh, run its course uh, in any uh, time in the near future. And we can see even today as we watch our government try to respond to the latest outrages in Syria, that we're trapped in something that has a deep, deep history. uh, And we can only be free of it if we do a much fuller job of reckoning explicitly of what that history was. You you know, you use the word trapped. In in many ways, it's it's representative of this idea of, of the cloister and this kind of closed meditative space Talk a little about that and its importance within the context of this story. Well, the cloister can be understood as a kind of uh, claustrophobic, closed-in place. Um, That's uh, probably how most folks think of it. But for me, the point of a cloister is the opening it represents. It's it's a, an invitation to a contemplative frame of mind where we are actually able to track the relationship between choices and consequences, to see much more deeply into what our lives actually involve. The cloister, in that sense, is the opposite of the tweet. Uh, the tweet is an invitation to live in the instant without any... Uh, developed awareness of implication or of consequence. It's only the present moment, the now, and therefore we're at the mercy of um, the first thought without a second thought. And so often the first thought needs to be criticized, needs to be thought through again. The cloister is a place where that's exactly what the human imagination uh, is inclined to to do. And uh, that's the point of it for monks and nuns. That's the point of it for um, Western culture. That's why I think these spaces are valued, are beautiful. The cloisters itself, if your listeners haven't been there, the next time they get to New York, they should make a point to get to this magnificent museum on the northern tip of Manhattan. The cloisters uh, is ironically a closed-in space that Uh, opens to infinity. That's the point of it. James Carroll, his new novel is The Cloister. James, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Jeff, it's a pleasure, always. Thank you so much, and I wish you well. Thank you.